0: So there's this Roman Catholic priest that told of his encounter with a mugger in a dark alley in back of a church at Notre Dame. As the priest was making his way down to the alley to his parked car, a man suddenly emerged from the shadows, thrusting the muzzle of a revolver into his ribs and demanding, Hand me your wallet. Offering no word of protest, the priest immediately began to comply. As he reached into his inside pocket, his clerical collar became evident in the dim light, catching the robber off guard. Are you a priest? he exclaimed. Well, yes, I am, the priest replied. Oh, I don't rob priests, the thief responded. I'm Catholic, too. Great relieved, the priest withdrew a cigar from his inside pocket and offered it to the thief. Oh, no, I can't do that, the thief exclaimed. I'll give him them up for Lent. The thief was a man with convictions, which he refused to violate. story interesting because a thief who had constantly done something bad, robbing innocent people, had enough sense to do something good for the priest. So in today's show, we're going to dive into why humans constantly struggle to find what is good or bad. In this episode, we'll explore the personal judgment behind good versus bad and its influence on our human behavior in the past and present.
1: So we're going to start off with our show with Act 1, Who's the Dog? In this act, we'll explore the cruelty behind the special breeding and modernization of the modern pit bull. How have we have humans crossed the line in using pests to fulfill our own desires? And is what we have done to the pit bull really good or bad? Now we introduce you to the author of the short story, Argo, with our guest interviewer, Lindsay Ayers.
2: Good afternoon. We are here today with Ebel Garcia, the author of Argo. Ebel, will you please tell us a little bit about the story, Argo?
3: Argo is a pit bull uh, as a small pot pup he's bringing into the underworld of illegal dog fighting. As he grows up, he starts learning and realizing new things that he never encountered before. And as the story goes on, new things happen to him.
2: Are you trying to represent any certain socioeconomic groups when you describe the owners of the fighting dogs?
3: I wasn't trying to represent a certain social group. I was trying to illustrate a certain type of person that that has a dead-on job and reality doesn't go anywhere. So what do you think about the Michael Vick case? I think the Michael Vick case was an example of pure human brutality. Although he wasn't part of the group I was describing, he is a prime example of those people that lack an ability to emphasize.
2: So what do you think about Michael Vick
0: being guilty?
3: I think he took way too long. It took a month to finally say, okay, I'm guilty, you guys, you know. And I appreciate the way he was kind of like not reading off a script that he actually said from his heart, but he took too long. That just made him look bad, and it... All the, the evidence was against him and then he just, no, no, I'm not guilty, no comment, no comment. And then, okay, he just, you know, just said, yeah.
2: So do you think he was actually on site at those dog fights?
3: I believe he was, cause there was some evidence and pictures of, that weren't released, but that showed that he was there. And there were some, there were some of the people that were there saying that he were sending out dogs to get killed. And he was there and he, him and some other person dropped a puppy on the floor twice and killed it and he was there doing it and there was evidence of it. So I believe he was there, even
2: though he denied it. So do you think that we as humans have crossed the line in using our pets as entertainment? Of
3: course we have. We took a modern pit bull and because of the way he looks, the way he appears, people see him as a bad dog, and we took that into our entertainment, into fighting, and we all uh,
2: like it and agree with it. And Gamble with their life. So, how do you know that line between what's good and what's not right? What, what's the line, and how do you know that?
3: Well, we have, we took our common pet that it was, has been there all alive, has been with us, we grew up with pets and everything, and then took it into another stage of what we want. We want to control everything. And we were like, oh, well, we can control an animal because they can't speak, they can't do anything about it. We train them to do this, they're going to do it. And we saw that as an easy way out to just we go from a simple good thing with training animals to behave a certain way into taking them into a stage where, hey, I'm going to fight you, and if you're good, I'll keep fighting you until you die, pretty much.
2: Hmm? What was your inspiration for writing Argo?
3: What inspired me the story was just many dogs out there that you see in TV, you see in cases like the Michael Vick case that I got put down and. You don't even know. You don't know what actually goes on, because none of those people come forward. Like Michael Vick, he denied it, denied it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Until he finally did. But none of those dogs. We never got to listen to their stories until a book came out called *The Lost Dogs*, which, was before that, we never knew what actually went on in these dogs' life and what they did. But my story, I, in a way, got into a dog and just wrote the story within the dog's point of view. And then my, I myself had a hard time writing it because it's some of the stuff that goes on in dogs that we don't know about yet is very very hard to even talk about or even describe
2: so, so you're clearly an animal lover
3: yes Yeah. I, yes, I am an animal lover I have a dog myself and many that do can relate to the story and relate
2: into the case do you think that the way society views the pit bull has led to this perverse form of entertainment I think society has done this because we've taken so many
3: things in, from good to bad, the internet, phones, pictures, and then animals. So by that, we took a modern animal into. it was pit, pit bull. They're like, oh, that dog's aggressive. There's states like Denver. They're outlaw because they see us pit bulls as aggressive. We we shaped an animal to a stage of friendly, loving animal because these animals were known for Americans like top loving animals. They were in kids' movies they're one of the friendliest dogs to kid, but anyway that sees them, they're like, oh no, Pibbles are aggressive, all because of their background of dog fighting and people think of that, they're like, oh, the Michael Vick kids, the main one, they think about it, because he was such an idol to everyone. Oh, he's a great football player. And then look, you see the other side of good to evil and look what he did. So I think that society has just tried to control too much of it and this is what has
2: ended up behind that. Now, in the short story, Argo, Argo has a special friend. Can you tell us about that special friend? He does have a special friend,
3: but for you to find out more about it you'll have to find my of a story and find yourself.
2: And now we get a special treat from author Ebel Garcia. She is going to give us a little preview from her short story, Argo.
3: New place, new life. I'll give you 400 for the black and white. That was the first time I heard his voice, my new owner. As he ripped me from the only place I remember being loved, I recalled the distinct smell of his hands. I would later come to realize it was pure hatred, a hatred that resided on his heart and radiated in his eyes. It threw me down to an unknowing place that became a heathen. I found myself surrounded by three walls and a gateway to agonizing howls. As I explored my cramped space, I detected a harsh, putrid scent. I could feel the absence of love in the air was overpowered by the presence of oppression. I wagged my tail in excitement as the man who tossed me in this strange place approached with another man. He was taller than the individual I had seen before. He was covered in a black pinstripe clothing, and his shoes were shiny, like the rectangle box he carried. His dad was pure pit bull. He killed every opponent he was challenged against. They called him Diablo affirmed the short man from before. The tall man liked what he heard. A grin appeared as he leaned down to get a closer look at me. The tall man inserted his fingers through the cage. I blissfully liked him. He had a bitter taste. Who's gonna make me some money? chimed the man in a high baby-like voice. He stood up and said, Argo. Excuse me, sir, questioned the short man. Name him Argo, replied the man as he walked away. After the tall man left, the short one returned with small bowls of water and food. Three days passed. I paced back and forth, licking my empty bowl, wondering, when was the shoreman coming back? Those two nights were cold. All I had was a corner and a rigid floor to sleep upon. Even though I was surrounded by the dogs, the silent nights became longer. On the fourth day, the shoreman came and filled our bowls. I jumped up and down in excitement to see him. I hoped he play with me, but he never did. He kicked my cage when I tried to lick his hand as he filled my bowl. He came back and opened the cage. I carried away, but he captured me. He took me to a dark room where two dogs were standing. I wonder if it was playtime. One was a female that was getting her teeth filed. I soon learned she was the bait, as the shoreman called her. The other was a male called Toby. He had scars on his snout and chest area. I remember his scent, because it was right next to my cage. I watched the two men hold them down. Go! yelled the man that was holding me. Both dogs charged at each other, like trains at full speed. The female's recently filed canines pierced Toby's chest. His loud, screeching, agonizing cry was like nothing I had ever heard.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, that was Ebel Garcia, author of the short story, Argo. If you would like to read a copy of Argo, you can click on the link from this podcast to read all about him.
1: And now we take you in our next segment, All Evil Will Succeed If a Good Man Does Nothing. We're about to take a blast from the past as we take you back to explore the good and evil and the death that sparked the American Civil Rights Movement. It was 1955 in a time in our nation 60 years ago, that most of us can't recall. It is important that we take the time to talk to experts, whether our parents, grandparents, earlier generations, that lived through the breakthrough of the civil rights movement, and the spark that ignited it. The untold story and death of Emmett Till. It is 1955 in Money, Mississippi in a rural town ruled by Jim Crow laws and a deadly separation. Desegregation is threatening the South's old way of culture, economic development, and beliefs. Tensions are high as a young boy, Emmett Till, 14 years old, from Chicago, is visiting his uncle, Mose Wright, in Money, Mississippi, where he is caught whistling at a white woman. Our play begins at a gas station just after the capture of Emmett Till from his captors, as we will see the evil if a good man does nothing. In the back of the truck, Emmett Till lies still in fitful fear of the muffled voices around him. He remains in a cold sweat, with his arms and legs bundled with ropes stretching tighter and tighter over every bump and turn in the road. Roy, J.W., and both men drive the truck three miles to a nearby gas station, and they pull in for a stop. Roy Bryant, getting out of his car, points to a serviceman at the gas station.
4: Get here, boy.
1: The serviceman approaches Roy. Good morning, sir. See it here that this truck gets enough gas to last for a while, and clean out the back. You hear Serviceman Yes, sir. J.W. Boys, get out that truck and head inside. Roy, J.W., and both men start to head inside the gas station while the service man puts the gas pump in the car and heads around back to clean up. As the service member pulls down the bed of the truck, red spots are sprinkled along the back of the truck like rain. He begins to clean as a dark red fluid seeps from a nearby sack horrified the serviceman lifts up the cloth in horror as his eyes lie upon the boy emmett till emmett lies with his eyes half open crusted with dry tears and dust as his hands and feet continue to bleed the ropes tightening and twisting and binding him with an invisible force quickly dropping the cover the serviceman calls to his boss and the men of the truck. Serviceman. Sir, I can't clean that car there. There got something goin' on with these men. They bounded a boy and he bleedin' he bleedin' to death. Boss Go and get these men there. The serviceman reaches Roy and his men as they are about to enter the store, shaking madly. Serviceman What What business you doing here, boys? What, what you bring in here to our store, sirs, it's wrong. It's wrong, sirs. J.W., hush. If I wouldn't know any better, it'd sound like you questioning what kind of man I am. Roy, the businesses we attend into is best be forgotten from you. We're going to do a favor for this community. We're teaching that boy a lesson. Servicemen. The, there's blood in that truck. Roy, and we expect that it'd be clean as we're good paying people. Now you go and do your job for my pistol only got two bullets. One for you and one for that boy if I ever see you telling anyone about what we do tonight. Now sir, serviceman, yes sir, Roy, his blood is in your hands now. And if I were you, I would best start cleaning it. The serviceman walked slowly back to the truck and begins to wipe away the red stains along the back of the truck. His towel soon begins to turn a crimson red as he watches Roy and his men leave the gas station. He stares down at his seeping towel in his hands, following the last drop of blood through the cracks and crevices of his crimson hands. He begins to speak madly to himself. "It, It don't do no good for all bloods, Red. Don't matter whom it come from, I'll say a prayer for you, boy. A good prayer. End scene two. Thank you. Thank you to our script readers who participated in reading our play today. I think it's important for me to give you some more background on the information of the case that the murderers of Emmett were acquitted. And this case was the official signal for lynching to rise once again in the South. The Civil Rights Movement was also referred to as the era where good men did nothing. And today we know that the rights of African Americans were enforced and recognized a decade later, but not soon enough. More than a hundred years since Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation during the Civil War. We have also interviewed a couple, Lillian Pittman and James Pittman, that lived during that time period from the town of Greenwood. They moved to Greenwood, which is approximately 15 minutes away from the crime scene in Tallahatchie County, in 1958, just three years after the murder of Emmett Till and a year after his trial and acquittal. But they, moving from Georgia, they were well aware of the town that they were moving into and can give us an insight on some of the things that they were saw and experienced while they were there. Uh, I
4: think generally the people thought that it was a terrible crime, but at the same time, I don't think they doubted one minute that these white men probably did it. So at this girl and these, these white uh, men resented that, and they looked him up that night. They looked him up, and they took him out and tortured him, and uh, and then threw his body in the Tallahatchie River. Say, so, what can you say, Jimmy? Well, that's, that's, a, that's what uh, the evidence seems to be. And uh, everybody in, in the city, But if I remember
1: correctly, they were not convicted, were they? No, they were acquitted.
4: Now, that's what I
1: thought. There was like a big, huge press conference that was held where his mom, um... Was basically kind of like challenging the government. It was when the North was calling for desegregation, for the South to stop with the Jim Crow laws and etc. And so a lot of the governments, especially in Mississippi, were really resistant to that. And so um, because it would like destroy the way that their you know their economy. And basically, the way they were living for the past like hundred years, they were a lot. Their tensions were really high, and so the fact that his um, murderers were acquitted was like one of the first national um, cases where she claimed that you know because nothing was being done, lynching is you know now okay. Uh,
4: I remember that they reading in the paper that they uh, uh, the the mother. lived, Emmett Till's mother, see, he came down from Chicago, but he was fished out of the river, his mother took his body back to Chicago for the funeral. And there was a huge, there were huge crowds in Chicago for the funeral. And she had, which was, this is, sounds gruesome, but she had an open casket, showing uh, uh, all of the uh,
1: bruises and the cuts, and the, yeah. you know,
4: all of that uh, on,
1: on Emmett Till's body. And, Graham, were you practicing law when you moved to Greenwood? mm
4: mm-hmm, uh, with a law firm. It was just a small town, a small southern town. At Greenwood is about 40, it was about 40,000 people.
1: Uh-huh.
4: And uh, it was, uh, you know, the whites, and the, the whites had their school, and the blacks had their school, and the whites had their churches, and the blacks had their, 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 their churches. There was no mixing or mingling
5: uh, or anything
4: like that. There was some resentment, but it wasn't like they—they uh, they didn't. It, it wasn't like the situation
1: in Little Rock where yeah. the, the police escorted a black
4: girl, a little black girl, to school. Yeah. What What happened over the? I don't remember any particular uh, instance. Uh, but what happened, Claire? Okay. The uh, white people all over the Delta, where there are is a big black population. Yeah. Uh, they got busy and they built a private school, and they where you have to pay to go to school. Yeah, or some were, were called academies.
1: Yeah. And,
4: and Greenwood built one, and uh, Phil, the name of that is Pillar Academy. And and the whites who could afford to pay to pay the uh, tuition all went to the white schools, and mm-hmm. that's the way that it is today. Yeah. People who can't afford. Uh, who could not afford uh, to pay it? They had to go to school with the blacks. Uh, they, the blacks and the whites still separated themselves socially in every way, and the school stopped having uh, proms. Really? They stopped having uh, uh, any kind of parties other than just the, the whites and the blacks. Just didn't didn't want to be together.
1: To read you a poem now from Marilyn Nelson's "A Wreath for Emmett Till." That inspired me to write this creative piece to go along with the discussion of good versus evil. A poem by Marilyn Nelson from her collection of poems, A Wreath for Emmett Till. Rosemary for remembrance, Shakespeare wrote. If I could forget, believe me, I would. Pierced by the screams of a shortened childhood, Emmett Till's name still catches in my throat. Mamie's one child, a body thrown to bloat. Mutilated boy martyr. If I could erase the memory of Emmett's victimhood, the memory of monsters, that bleak thought, tears through the patchwork drapery of dreams, let me gather spring flowers for a wreath. Trillium, apple blossoms, Queen Anne's lace, Indian pipe bloodroot, white as moonbeams, like the full moon which smiled calmly on his death, like his gouged eye which watched boots kick his face that poem by Marilyn Nelson includes several literary and cultural allusions from Shakespearean sonnets to recent world-world events and when asked what the relevance of Emmett Till's murder way back in 1955 is, Nelson quotes the relevance of some of the references has to do with the idea of terrorism the Ku Klux Klan and racist organizations related to the Klan were the first organized terrorist group in the world. The period during which many lynchings happened was at the beginning of the 20th century. This epidemic of lynchings was intended to terrorize the black population in the South. These were acts of terrorism. And I wanted to relate those acts of terrorism with the acts of terrorism that are happening in our era. End quote. She was referring to the World Trade Center bombings. And asked, how do you think young readers are listening are going to react to this and how she wants her audience to react to the story of Emmett Till's brutal murder? she quotes i hope they react with shock i hope they haven't been so jaded by violence and brutality we see every day in the media that they will be unable to be shocked by this because it is a very shocking story i hope they react with empathy i hope they will all understand and empathize with the horror that Emmett Till must have felt and his mother and i also hope they will appreciate the history that is being portrayed here that they will learn something about a very difficult and painful and brutal period in American history." As you can see, literature, poems, music, and movies, and plays have all played a powerful role in exploiting our mistakes. But how many of you have ever heard of Marilyn Nelson's collections of poems, Are we really listening to the voices of the past, our history, to learn from our mistakes? As we saw in the play earlier, if a good man does nothing, like the man at the gas station who saw Emmett Till bleeding and knew about his demise? If a good man does nothing, is he really bringing about justice? And as good people, back then we let evil run its course through June Crow laws and lynching that sparked the Civil Rights Movement. Our purpose in bringing you these untold stories today and the story to come is to help you develop your own personal judgment about what is good and what is evil. And is it really better? Not to do anything at all, and let justice figure itself out and run its course. We leave you with these questions today as we head into our next segment. Next up we have what is good versus evil. In this act, we will explore why some religious people hold strongly to their convictions and how they determine what is good and bad. We will also look into whether doing a bad thing is worse than doing not a good deed at all.
6: I grew up Baptist in a large town in Texas. The majority of the people in my town went to church on Sunday, some went to Bible study on Wednesday, and the daring few held smaller weekly Bible studies. There were many of my friends who held to strong religious traditions, telling them the good things they should do and the bad things they shouldn't do, and that's really what helped me remember which religion or denomination they associated with themselves. I had more than friends who couldn't drink anything with caffeine and went to Bible study every morning at 6 a.m., My Catholic friends who went through Confirmation and didn't eat meat on Fridays during Lent, and there were Muslim friends who didn't eat pork and fasted for long periods of time. Living in a predominantly Christian town, Baptists were never really set apart from the other religions or denominations by any standard, but I do recall hearing jokes about the centuries-old tradition of no dancing and alcohol. See, in the 19th century, church discipline was the focus of the Baptist church and rules of decorum were implemented. Churches held monthly conferences and its members were subjected to trials where they were accused and tried for issues of moral profanity that included dancing, drinking, and other infractions considered spiritually unlawful. Even though there's plenty of scripture that gives dancing a positive connotation, people in the past few centuries and current times have used dancing to provoke you know, sexual feelings, doubling the activity of profanity. The church was more a place to discern what Christians should not do, and in response, attendance decreased. It was not until after the Civil War that the strict church disciplines declined. Urbanization in the New South called for larger congregations, higher salaries, and wider wider emphasis on what church members should not do. By the end of the 19th century, the Baptist Church decided not to publish any more disciplines and allowed its members to discern right from wrong on an individual basis. Many people allow themselves to be defined by the religion as what they do not do because it is a bad sin, rather than what they do because it is a good deed. People may choose not to drink at parties and instead judge their friends for partaking in those kinds of activities. But does that make them a Christian? They may be great at saying no to the bad things, but are they going out in the world and doing the good things? There's terms that describe these kind of actions called sins of commission and omission. Sins of commission are defined as sins that we commit and shouldn't have, like Lying, lusting, and murdering. Sins of omission are the sins of when we know the right thing to do, we choose not to do. The church teaches what is wrong and immoral, like murder and lust, but most people are aware of the consequences, because they usually are visible. We often overlook our sins of omission, though, because we're so focused on what we should not do, There's a verse in the book of James that says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to whom it is a sin. Neither doing a bad thing or not doing a good thing can be considered beneficial to God, so both can be considered sins. So is the girl who hooked up with five guys last Saturday night any worse than the girl who slept in Saturday morning, knowing she could have fed the homeless breakfast? I choose to believe not. Even though religion may tell us to hold certain convictions, we're entitled to have beliefs that say we do not have to hold these convictions. I danced in classes and on teams from the age of five to the end of my senior year of high school. If my church would have told me to quit because it was spiritually wrong, I probably would have asked my parents to let me go to a different church. I never would have let anything like that define my faith or what I believe. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not, you most likely have reasons for not doing certain things. People want to find ways to justify themselves as good people in their own minds, and they have their own ways for discerning good from bad. I visited a local high school last week to talk to a few different
0: students and ask them two different questions. Okay, is doing a bad thing worse than not doing a good thing.
5: Doing something bad and knowing and knowing that is bad is, I think, just as bad as doing something or not doing something good and knowing that you're not doing anything um, that's just as bad because you're not actually taking action to provide anything good and even if you try to convince yourself that you're not that though you're not doing anything bad that's good it's really not because you're not helping anyone in any way or doing anything for anyone else.
1: Um, I think they're about equal because when you're doing a bad thing it's obviously not a good outcome but it's really the same if you are choosing not to do a good thing when you see the idea. different options so either way you're not like helping. Out.
5: I personally believe that not doing a good thing is worse than doing a bad thing because apathy is what allows bad things to continue happening in the world yes because being a doing a bad thing has negative consequences and not doing a good thing just you, you're you not really giving positive or negative energy you're just kind of chilling.
0: How do you determine what is good and bad?
5: Um, what is good and bad really stems from um, a lot of like religious preferences and also from like moral uh, moral like importance of different issues. Um, for most people, they'll just depend on their religion and look at that to see what is good and bad and what's been defined before. And most people don't actually actively think about them like themselves. They don't actually act, they don't actually think about what is good and bad. they just follow. What has been set down from the what has been set down for them and what they've learned from their parents and such, and it is really important to develop yourself so that you learn what is good and bad for yourself.
2: Um, I personally
1: do it based off my morals. It's not as much religion based, but I think different people choose it for different reasons, like what their friends do, their family, like how they teach Are them, or religion.
5: You can decide what is good or bad by what benefits people in all of society and what doesn't, and what could be counterproductive. Honestly, I just kind of do whatever feels right and however my parents were, or parents raised me.
0: Even as young adults, students clearly have already formed morals and opinions in their heads and use these to determine their daily decisions. Religion often plays a big role in these decisions, but a lot of times it's just a simple matter of intuition. Humans will continue to always have different views on what is good or bad and the weight of those actions, or lack of action.
1: Thank you for listening to our show today as we reveal our untold stories from the past and present. We hope that they were thought-provoking and helped you discern your own personal judgment about what is good and what is really bad. Please join us next week as we search America for what truly makes a great teacher.
3: Mr. Kerr!